0: Hi, and welcome to Displaced. I am Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Grimuthi. Displaced is a podcast collaboration between the International Rescue Committee, where Ravi and I work, and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today on the show, we are chatting with Jan Egland. Jan is the former uh, Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs. He served as the United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. And right now, he is the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Jan is a fabled humanitarian who has been on the front lines of both conflict uh, in providing humanitarian aid and taking an active role in mediating conflict. And Ravi, you invited him on. Why are we talking with him? Well, he's had a pretty mediocre career by the son of it. He's
1: he's done nothing. No, I mean, it's interesting. We could talk to him about running a large organisation like the Norwegian Refugee Council, but I'm interested more in digging into the question about how do you mediate conflicts? Because one of the things that Jan was involved in was the Oslo peace process, and he's personally been involved in how you facilitate negotiations between different warring parties, and anyone who works in the humanitarian world – Uh, a lot of the time just sits there wringing their hands at the uh, terrible crises in the world and they're not ending. And so rather than discussing how we provide services to refugees, let's talk about how you actually stop the
0: the problem in the first place. It's interesting to me because since World War II, there have been over a thousand attempts at mediating conflicts. And what we know from the data is that the probability that we are able to end a war through mediation is uh, five times greater. Um, than when we don't actually use that strategy. And so Jan is somebody who has actually done this. He has been in the rooms with uh, party members from warring factions trying to figure out how you stop a conflict. And I want to know what it's like to be at that table. One of the things that uh, you were famous for is leading mediations to stop seemingly intractable conflicts. You were involved in the Israeli-Palestinian Oslo Accords in 1992, the FARC uh, negotiations in Colombia in 1996, uh, the South Sudan government peace talks in 2000 amidst others. One core question is, what do mediators do? Well, mediators try to get uh, warring
2: factions, conflict parties To agree uh, to settle the conflict uh, through an agreement rather than through a, a military solution on the battlefield, which very often doesn't exist. There are not only mediators, and in my career, where I have been involved in more than a dozen peace processes. I was seldom a mediator. I was much more the facilitator of a peace process. The Oslo agreement between Israel and the PLO in 1992-93 was was that of Norway performing the role of the facilitator. They negotiated directly with each other. The other third way of of doing conflict resolution would also be... uh, more playing the role of the host. The International Committee of the Red Cross uh, may have done that in many uh, conflict scenes. Switzerland performed that kind of a role up through history with Geneva, etc.
1: And to what extent, when you are playing that facilitator role, do you structure the negotiation process and how do you think about structuring that?
2: Oh, You have to do a lot of analysis of the conflict parties Really, we, we in a way, you have a matrix where you, you see are the parties willing to talk, yes or no? And then the follow-up question is, are they able to really uh, negotiate uh, yes or no? So, for example, uh, in my time as Deputy Foreign Minister of Norway in the 1990s, we saw that the guerrilla of, the, of Guatemala, the URNG, as they were called, was willing to talk with the government of Guatemala, and the government was also willing to to, to be part of this peace process. Uh, but the guerrilla was in the in the position of weakness. They knew how to fight. They had no international lawyers who were able to to formulate positions. So we actually, from the Norwegian side, as part of a sort of a very proactive facilitation, even funded them. Um, Uh, legal expertise uh, on constitutional other matters for them and thereby made them able uh, to talk.
0: I think one of the interesting things that strikes me is how commonly kind of mediation and facilitation is used as a technique of intervention. Um, It's in the post-World War II era accounted for more than one fifth of all the kind of third party interactions into civil war. And uh, essentially from what you can see from the data, you know, following World War II, there's been roughly 333 interstate and civil wars of varying size, and within those, over 1,300 attempts at mediation. There have been, you know, 434 mediations between 1918 and 2001 that ultimately had uh, a probability of reaching kind of a a resolution, that conflict, um, five times greater than when mediation was absent. And so you also start to see these trends that mediation really does work. From your personal experience, what makes mediation work?
2: Well, the, the most crucial factor is actually not so much the mediator or the facilitator or the third party, it's the willingness of the parties to actually, of both sides at the same time, both or more sides, there were many wars actually with multiple warring sides now. It's it's hard to get all of them to agree to talk at the same time. Uh, Usually in war, uh, the stronger party is less willing to talk than the weaker party. Uh, The stronger party believe very often that there is a military solution. Um, At at times, even the weaker party may be unwilling to talk because they would like to strengthen their position uh, in the field, uh, you know, uh, on the map before before talks. So interestingly and also tragically, we often see an intensification of the fighting before uh, talks, so that uh, the parties want to, sp- to negotiate from a position of strength. I have in my years of, uh, of, 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 of dealing with conflicts from the, from the Balkans to, to Sri Lanka, to, to Sudan, the Middle East, Colombia, often been asked by students of um, peace studies, you know, how did the table look like? How did you, what language did you use? How? Uh, a lot of things as if it mostly depended on the third party, the mediator, to get a successful peace process. And I always try to explain it's really the parties that is uh, that is the issue. Now I am um, a, a humanitarian advisor to the uh, UN... Uh, peace talks in Geneva for Syria, and uh, there is really no lack of excellent, well-thought-out uh, peace initiatives and negotiations from the UN. Uh, what is needed is, is, is really the parties willing uh, to sit down at the same time to re- really discuss the real issues that they are fighting uh, about.
1: So I'd like us to get into Syria in a bit more detail uh, a bit later. Um, but one thing that you said just then, I think is it gets at a really interesting point, which is there are unintended consequences from starting mediation processes, and as you said, sometimes that can trigger uh, violent activity as people try to negotiate from a position of strength. So I'm interested in how you go about thinking about the risks of mitigation, because it's not a cost-free exercise, and, and, and whether you've been in situations where you've thought, let's not signal that we're going to try to mediate, let's hold off, because we think it actually will make things worse. I mean, there are other unintended consequences like, for instance, uh, you, know, you might undermine people because they may be seen as selling out if they engage in mediations, or you might create and change the power structure um, in that given situation. So I'd love for you to say a bit more about how you've uh, mitigated those risks.
2: Well, always when I've been involved, uh, one, uh, one key question is, who are the third parties now wanting to try to find conflict resolution? Uh, and in modern conflict resolution, there usually is no lack of third parties able and willing to step forward. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Cold War, there's been a, um, a plethora of uh, especially so-called uh, track-to-peace processes where non-state actors try to facilitate peace. Which is a good thing in itself, but uh, when University A, B, and C, and Think Tank uh, D, and F, and then uh, the NGO uh, Y, z all want to invite the same South Sudanese or Sudanese parties to the table, these can do so called forum shopping. And what is that? It is appearing as you're interested in talking peace by going from one peace conference to the next when you're
0: really interested in being a warlord and fighting. That's uh, that's really interesting. And I think one of the things that strikes me about what you're saying is that particularly in areas where there's many non-state actors... Um, it's really difficult to identify who you should bring to the table. So when you're dealing with nation-states, it's comparatively easier. You have governments that, to some extent, um, are representative of the people. Um, And even if they're not representative of the people, there's an institution. So you're able to identify maybe a leader or a set of leaders who represent that institution. But in complex conflicts, when you have many factions— it's really hard to identify who you should bring to the table so when you deploy within a conflict or even over the arc of a conflict as it changes how do you think about which actors you bring to the which non-state actors you bring to the table is there is there a kind of rule of thumb or criterion that you employ to uh, determine who should actually be around Well, there are many uh,
2: criteria, um, some more important than the other. Uh, Certainly, you need government uh, and governmental forces uh, at the bargaining table. You need the most important uh, non-state armed groups also at the table, Uh, I mean, in our time and age, uh, there are few international armed uh, conflicts. There are many internal armed conflicts or civil wars. Um, And then there are also many actually internationalized civil wars where you have um, parties in, in, in that country Very often the government and some guerrilla forces or opposition forces or rebel forces, whatever you call it. And then both the government and the rebel forces are supported by international actors. So you want to have um, the most important military parties on the ground engaged. You also need to have their main international sponsors Engaged? Uh, Are there, if if in Syria at one point I heard there were at least 1,600 armed opposition groups with a name, Uh, you you cannot have 1,600 armed groups plus the government at a table. Uh, You would then need to have uh, umbrella organizations and representatives. Of um, of uh, political forces that can, with some legitimacy, represent the armed groups in the field. One more
1: um, aspect, and, and yeah, just pick, just picking yeah. up on that particular yeah. point. I mean, to what extent do you feel that when, if if, if there are sixteen hundred groups in a given place, are there times when you think we can't do anything right now? There has to be a process of aggregation um, before we can actually meaningfully engage, because the the rebel parties are too fragmented.
2: In my view, there is, is, is never a, uh, a bad time for making efforts for peace. Uh, war is always so horrific for the civilian population uh, that it is our moral uh, duty uh, to always uh, work for peace. Uh, many academics have said there will not be meaningful peace before the regime. Mutually hurting stalemate, which is one of the concepts developed, and I think there is a lot of truth in that. the The successful peace effort comes when, when all of the main uh, parties to the conflict feel they have nothing more to gain in the battlefield. But, but we will always have to. To, to fight for peace uh, as it were but but then again we need to be realistic so so again if there are many many actors in the field you have part of the peace efforts is can we can 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 that cluster of uh, of groups be represented in this way can that cluster of groups be represented in that way and can they please can you please coordinate positions among yourselves so that we have a a clear uh, line-up in in talks. And then can you as an international sponsor please realize that you're creating havoc in X country and help us push your allies to the negotiating table um, uh, because if we don't have both international and national uh, actors pushing in the same direction, we will not
0: succeed. Can I um, uh, ask a follow-up question on that, which pulls on Ravi, one of your comments, and Jan, what you're saying, around how to aggregate these players. Ravi, if I understand what you're saying, I think you're suggesting that you know, when there's too much fragmentation, if you've got 1,600 groups, like it's just going to be too intensive to launch uh, negotiations that are in any way effective. I mean, Jan, what you're saying, I think, is that what you need to do is figure out how to engage with uh, these actors in a way that— Coordinates them to to make it feasible. So, I'm wondering if you can take us through an example in Syria, just concretely. How do you how do you take a list of 1,600 actors with their names and tactically get to a place where you've got a coordinated effort? What does that look like in practice?
2: Well, I, I, I was never have never been responsible for the political uh, for for any part in the political peace talks in in Syria. I I have there uh, led. A humanitarian task force where 24 countries with interest and influence in Syria sit and we discuss and I try to push the various sides that have interests in Syria to help us the UN to get access to besieged areas and to hard to reach areas civilians in Syria but uh, under the able leadership of staffan de mistura the the UN envoy and his predecessors, a great deal of work was done to help with international partners to help actually crystallize one main opposition alliance, a so-called high negotiating committee that represented then most of the main opposition groups, not the terrorist groups, but the the other political armed groups. And then there were also two other fora uh, of opposition uh, that also was um, connected to the Syria uh, talks. And then on top of that, there was also civil society participation, if a, a, a women's advisory board, uh, it was, that, it, that was its name, is its name uh, as the Civil Society Advisory Institute for the talks, and then also Civil Society uh, op- Operations Room, uh, which where the UN also facilitated input from civil society in the main peace talks. That hasn't taken place for quite some time because uh, of, 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 a, of a lack of common ground among the parties, even on how... Uh, and when to talk.
1: And that point about civil society involvement is interesting because one of the risks with any process like this is that you make it about elites, and elites engage, and particularly in weak, unaccountable states, those elites don't really represent anybody and have a, don't, don't necessarily have a, a proper connection into the public. So how important is it to actually engage uh, beyond the elites in peace processes, and how do you actually do that, particularly in a weak state?
2: I mean, it is very important, of course, that the peace process itself and the compromise that will come out of a potentially successful peace process is accepted among the peoples on the ground, uh, which it often isn't because being a compromise and being far away from what was the initial positions of, of the parties as they were fighting and bleeding for for their, you know, uh, original positions. Uh, It's hard to sell, you know, after all of this blood, uh, sweat and tears, we're going to go for something actually close to our, what our enemy's position was, closer to it. It's hard to sell it. Um, We we saw that with the Oslo Agreement, actually. Uh, The Oslo Agreement was coming out of, as you know, of uh, Israel first with academics uh, because it was so controversial to negotiate with the other side which was PLO, then seen as a terrorist organization both by Israel and the United States and many other uh, countries. Um, the, it was small negotiating teams that entered at the end into official direct negotiations between Israel as a, uh, Israel's government and the PLO. If only... Um, Israel and PLO in the room for most of the time. We as Norwegians, being out of the room, just hosting and knowing of it and facilitating the talks. And in the end, then it was presented to and agreed in the Israeli Parliament, the Knesset, and also in the Palestinian National Convention, or the main, the main entity. But it was never put to a referendum, neither in Israel or among the Palestinians and it met with a lot of uh, opposition. We saw that, and therefore we started people-to-people peace processes. But in a way, at that time, the enemies of peace was had already grown strong with extremists on both sides, both on the Palestinian and the Israeli side. So it's very important to get uh, that uh, that civil society involvement. At the same time as it is, you know, it's never going to be uh, everybody's right to participate the, the whole population. So to some extent, you select individuals, often from NGOs and civil society groups, who, who are not necessarily representative for very wide strata of the population that may be very poor or very or were very weak.
0: is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter.com displaced. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over a hundred of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com dot com slash displaced That's ZipRecruiter.com dot com slash D I S P L A C E D ZipRecruiter dot com slash displaced. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I want, to, I want to hop into Oslo in just a, a second, be, but one of the things you said really struck me around the fact that in these types of negotiated processes, elites or civil society or whoever's around the table ultimately has to come home and sell these uh, compromises, these negotiations to, to their constituencies, um, to the people who have been participating in conflict, who have lost family members, um, who've been exposed to trauma. And and it gets to a question of how do you frame these mediations and negotiated settlements in ways that can actually enable these individuals to go back to their communities and effectively sell these deals. And so I think in, in one sense, there's an idea that these exact type of compromises should be win-wins, right? You're stopping conflict. Uh, that's exactly what you need to do. But I think there's Also, an emerging rhetoric recently, you know, you see this in the United States around kind of current discussions around um, uh, negotiations with North Korea or more broadly in other places that actually there's a desire for these compromises to asymmetrically uh, do better by one player. Right. Each leader wants to go back to their constituents and talk about how much better they did in the deal than the other party. So. From your perspective, how do you think about framing peace deals and managing expectations so that you don't have individuals um, go back and sell these uh, sell these settlements um, in a way that's seen as either a loss of pride or identity?
2: Well, I think uh, that the first agreement you have to have on that between the parties is uh, a, a common line of presenting the compromise solution which will be controversial on both sides uh, the um, uh, ideally you would have then the mediator present it and also have agreed language on how to um, interpret the various uh, sub agreements and a, and also a, an agreed timeline for implementation uh, you know a realization of the agreements is very difficult i mean the the uh, I, I remember we had a saying in, in, in just after we made several of these agreements or attempted agreements that it's uh, it's uh, close to impossible to make a uh, warring party agree on anything and it's even more difficult to have them implement anything after the agreement is made Uh, remember, the the economy is uh, is very often in shatters. There is uh, expectations that peace will be fantastically different than war and immediately good is always there, that the men who have lived by the gun and who have actually derived status from having gun, uh, that they will actually get real work afterwards – in all of this, I think the third party may help. One should have a 100 days plan for, you know, job creation, for investment, for a development, for demobilisation, but do not underestimate how difficult it is to implement peace agreements.
1: So let's apply that to Oslo, as, as Grant said earlier. It'd be great to actually understand how... Uh, that process unfolded and what the kind of key inflection points are, because it's easy to forget actually now that it was a real breakthrough, the Oslo Agreement. It it forced the uh, PLO and Israel to recognise each other for the first time. It created the Palestinian Authority as a provisional government. It laid out a five-year process for uh, undertaking a peace process. So how did you uh, facilitate that, uh, particularly at the outset?
2: Well, yeah, uh, and, and, and and why didn't we uh, agree, have them agree on a, a fully fledged peace peace agreement that, that could really be implemented? very quickly and yeah answer, we'd love
1: to know yeah. we'd love to know you know how how what could have been different to make it even more at the time it was a breakthrough but it would be great to understand how it could have been even more successful but um, great also just to understand the actual opening uh, chapter of that process
2: yeah well by anyway, the way the weakness of the of 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 the what is a, an agreement called the declaration of principles it's it's the declaration of the oslo accord is a declaration of principles It's it's not a finished peace accord. In many ways, it is a five-year schedule for how to negotiate on the final status issues that were not agreed at the time. Uh, One basically agreed, precisely as you said, to not fight each other anymore, to recognize each other not as terrorist and occupying oppressor, but as neighbors. Uh, the, to have the first Palestinian, for the first time, the Palestinian flag over Palestinian territory, for the first time have Palestinians educate their own children, probably ever in in history. So there was a number of things, but there was no Palestinian state. There was no agreement on, on Jerusalem. There was no agreement on the, on the final borders. There was no agreement on future of the settle uh, illegal uh, settlements uh, on occupied land, there was no agreement crucially on Palestinian refugees and and where they could return or settle so yes it would have been a um, hundred times better if we had had agreements at the time on those controversial final final status issues, but it wasn't possible, so the alternative to this declaration of principles, and the schedule for talks was to have nothing and continued occupation, continued war. um, And that seemed a worse alternative at the time. It seems a worse alternative also today.
0: One of the interesting parts about the Oslo Accord, um, as, as Ravi was talking about in the start of the early chapters, is how secretive it is. I'd love you to reflect on how important secrecy is to actually getting some of these early stage negotiations off the ground and and whether that's also something that's an artifact of, of that time, because I think about, you know, increased social media and intelligence capabilities today. And I, I wonder if it's even possible to kind of structure those same types of uh, launches for negotiations. Well, at that time,
2: uh, secrecy was the only only alternative because they hadn't recognized each other. I mean, is, Israelis were in jail for having talked to PLO at the time. The US officials were banned from talking to uh, PLO. It would be seen as treason within PLO to speak to the Israeli uh, oppressor and occupier. Uh, it was... Uh, part of the Palestinian charter uh, before our mutual recognition uh, agreement to to, uh, fight Israel and its existence. So it had to be secret if there were were to be any talks. In the official peace talks, there was no PLO. There was a Jordanian-Palestinian joint delegation that were sabotaged by PLO, and, and those who were there had no legitimacy at all to speak on behalf of the of, of the Palestinians. The, uh, so it was the only option, but it was also had the remarkable effectiveness that people were talking to each other. Israelis and Palestinians were really bargaining at the table from morning until late night. It was really very, very effective. So I am always in favor of having back channels between warring parties, in addition to front official front channels that that are much more the front channel much more cumbersome, public, polarized, difficult, bureaucratic. Of course, a back room deal has no legit legitimacy until it is presented to the legitimate decision making bodies, the parliament of the country, or or or, or the main assembly of a a rebel movement, for example, only then can you say that we have really an agreement when
0: it's endorsed on either side. It's totally wild to think about the fact that uh, people would have been put in jail if they were even talking with uh, PLO members, because it it gets to the very question of just how can you even negotiate? Um, And so it makes sense to to, uh, start these secretively. One of the things that you said, though, also, I think, points to one of the unique roles that Norway had. So I think if you were unfamiliar with uh, mediation processes and you were starting to look at the Oslo Accords – I think the first thing you would be surprised by is the fact that Norway was the originator of this and kind of the successful uh, manager of this. and And in your book, one of the things that you're taught that you reflect on is when you start to launch the negotiations. There's a meeting with Itzhak Rabin of Israel. And uh, and you could say, you know, quote, he took note of the Norwegian officer's um, confidence-building e- uh, efforts, but emphasized that he saw the United States, which sends us billions of dollars every January, upon which our security relies clearly in the lead of mediation efforts. And I think the expectation would be that, yes, these major powers would be negotiating these mediations. But – Actually, Norway was uh, the exact right player at the time for the reasons that you're saying, right? These, It's easier to facilitate back channels. Um, there's a little bit more of a way of uh, engaging in kind of uh, secret uh, meetings that protect individuals. So how should we think about the role of small states versus big states in mediation?
1: And can I just add to that, which is, did you line up various different parties, including the US, in advance to welcome... This uh, whole thing, or did you go out on a limb and act quite independently?
2: We actually initiated our um, back channel uh, on our own, and and in the very beginning, it it was really a more of a uh, an attempt to find confidence building measures that could assist the. Uh, the front channel, the the, the Madrid-Washington official uh, process, we never dreamt uh, of them coming up with a full, fully fledged uh, declaration of principles for for peace between the two parties. When we started, when it sort of took off, I, I uh, being the deputy foreign minister of of, uh, of Norway, saw that could have enormous consequences, and, and we really wanted uh, the U.S. to be supporting this. It had, it had to have the U.S. support to fly, and thereby we started to inform the U.S. of progress uh, in our back channel. But then again, when there was a leak in Washington at one point, so it nearly destroyed the channel, we actually discontinued um, informing Washington. And in the end, it was actually a surprise to Warren Christopher um, when our foreign minister and uh, Paris, uh, Shimon Paris, and the PLO delegate informed, the uh, no, no, PLO wasn't a part of that at the, at the time, when, it, when Israel and Norway informed um, the US that there is actually a, a, an agreement. And we also, on my proposal, said and we're willing to keep it secret forever. You can have it and present it as a Washington agreement. And the and it was Warren Christopher who said uh, these things usually get out. Let's call it what it is. It is an Oslo agreement.
1: So we, we started this conversation by talking about how you need to analyse whether it's possible to do a deal and uh, assess the different positions of the various parties, and also the unintended consequences that can flow from mediation. But I think in this conversation, you've also said that you must always try. You must always try and create peace. And there's no excuse for waiting until uh, the perfect moment occurs. And I'm interested in, to what extent do you feel it is the right thing to do always to pursue negotiations? Or is it right to sometimes say... There's no deal that's ever going to be possible between these different parties. They're too far apart. There's no trust. Um, or, you know, we need to wait until the powers are more balanced when an actual negotiation's got the chance of, of, of striking a, a compromise. I think my
2: position, with possible exceptions, my position is that there is always an imperative to seek peaceful conflict resolution and to seek an end to armed conflict because it's so gruesome for the civilian population, always. Uh, But it's not like any peace deal uh, is worthy of being realized. It's very clear that some compromises that may come out of talks may be so fundamentally flawed that uh, that it's better to continue negotiating. Clearly, if if it is so one-sided that it will lead to renewed conflict later on, one shouldn't have invested lots of resources in trying to implement an agreement that is fundamentally flawed. Uh, What is fundamentally flawed? Well, that is is a judgment uh, call. It is nearly always going to be an agreement that is closer to the stronger party than to the weaker party, for example. So what is too close to a strong party, what is too unacceptable for the weaker party, that is again a judgment call.
1: If it's important we always actually try to push forward uh, negotiations and peace processes, does that mean that we should potentially always be open to negotiating with every party I'm taking the most extreme examples, such as Islamic State or, or Al-Qaeda. Is it, is it possible to even conceive of uh, engaging them in conversations? Uh,
2: n- not necessarily always. Uh, and that could be the, uh, the uh, exception to this uh, rule of always needing to negotiate. Um, I mean, th- there are uh, criminal gangs that, are, that you don't want to give the legitimacy of of negotiating with them, the drug cartels in Latin America have at times been much stronger than many uh, many a uh, Marxist guerrilla group. And usually, we said in in Colombia that, well, if a group has political, or religious, or cultural roots and positions, etc., one should negotiate an end to the conflict with them uh, through some kind of political deal, if they have. A criminal motive. They are a paramilitary group funded by by drug uh, money. You can still negotiate, but that would be surrendered. It would be handing over arms. It would be a a a, a deal for how to end the armed struggle. So again, talks, but not not for for constitutional reform. Uh, on terrorists, it's often said that your terrorists are my freedom fighters. PLO was a terrorist organization as much as Hamas is seen as such today. Some of the Israeli politicians, as you know, were terrorists in in their youth. Shamir, leading the Stern group group that put put bombs in in civilian places, etc., um, the the uh, t- terrorism uh, labels are thrown in very many directions. In Syria, everybody claims to be fighting terrorism. Iran fights, uh, claims to be in in Syria to fight terror. Israel is fighting terror in Syria by fighting Iran. Uh, Russia is there to fight uh, t- terrorism. U.S. is there to fight terrorism. In the end, it becomes a judgment call. Today, everybody wants to negotiate with the Taliban. It seems, uh, for for decades, it was seen as anathema to negotiate with the terrorist uh, terrorist group.
0: I want to wrap on. Uh- one potentially sadder question, um, which is around the status um, and state of international humanitarian law. Um, I think IHL is is becoming increasingly less and less respected in the way that states conduct their warfare. Civilians have been increasingly targeted. Um, humanitarians have been targeted. Hospitals are bombed. Chemical, chemical weapons are being used. Syria is obviously, I think, the ground zero for where you see um, a lot of violations around IHL. But I think it's also something that's more broadly Uh, shaping um, the way that war is conducted. And I'd love on this ending note to get your reflections on how you think about the breakdown of international humanitarian law at this moment and what should be done about it. That is indeed an appropriate ending point
2: because what we as humanitarians, as third parties, as peace diplomats always have to have as a starting point is international law. A human rights law and humanitarian law of armed conflict. Humanitarian principles, the principles of impartiality, neutrality, and humanity, are are, are very important uh, for a third uh, party, and and therefore uh, I'm a strong believer in the resurgence of belief in international humanitarian law. It it is what. It is what you know governs our civilizations uh, vis-à-vis uh, armed uh, conflict. Uh, is it? I mean, you, you say as if it is a, uh, is a fact that it is less and less respected. It cert- it it was certainly very uh, unrespected in um, Syria, uh, which is uh, a, a record in a generation of attacks on hospitals, for example. But there are many other places where humanitarian principle, humanitarian law is respected. So we cannot give up. We need to work on that. And that will govern me as a, as a, a humanitarian diplomat, me as a humanitarian, me as a, a, as a third-party peace facilitator. It's, it are, are these humanitarian principles? Uh, you, you have to respect the civilian population, those who are not fighting. And there are also rules for how to deal with combat, for, for de- dealing with both the prisoners and the wounded on the battlefield, and that has to be brought to the table and that is to govern what a mediator can be part of and what he or she cannot be part of in, in talks. We cannot be party to immunity deals, for example, for war crimes, etc.,
0: Jan Eglin, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. For listening, our team at the IRC is Alex Bandea, katherine Long, and Ben Moskowitz.
0: And we are eternally grateful to our partners at Vox Media Podcast Network. Jelani Carter is our associate producer, Golda Arthur is our senior producer, and Nishat Kurwa is the executive producer of audio at Vox Media. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer.
1: Do get in touch with us and give us any feedback and suggestions on who we should have on the show at displaced at and
0: subscribe at Apple Podcasts
1: or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We put up show notes at www.rescue.org forward slash displaced. Check them out. See you next week and
1: thanks for listening.